Hello, listeners. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Michaela Zofi, and I'm a senior chemistry major with a minor in neuroscience. Today, I have with me Blake Brown and Ricardo Salinas. Hi, I'm Blake Brown. I'm a senior psychology major and a neuroscience minor. Hi, I'm Ricardo Salinas, and I'm also a psychology major with a minor in neuroscience. So obviously, much of the information surrounding this topic has been discussed extensively on countless platforms. So we'll move through that more quickly so that we can get to the stuff that deserves more emphasis and the nitty-gritty of the how and why. Cannabis is a term used to describe a genus of plants. Today's scientific consensus establishes three distinct species, C. sativa, C. indica, and C. ruderalis. Of the three, indica and sativa contain the highest levels of tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, which is the compound responsible for the high associated with the plant. But THC is just one of the hundreds of active compounds, called cannabinoids, that are found in cannabis. Some cannabinoids are psychoactive and some aren't. But the one that's best understood alongside THC is called cannabidiol, or CBD. CBD is associated with most of the plant's medical applications, due to its analgesic and anticonvulsant properties, among many others. CBD has proven effective in treating various forms of epilepsy, such as Dravet syndrome, a treatment-resistant childhood epilepsy. So why does cannabis affect our bodies? This is thanks to the endocannabinoid system, a complex system of neurotransmitters and receptors present throughout our nervous system that help the body control many important processes, such as pain, hunger, stress, sleep, and immune system function, just to name a few. The receptors are called cannabinoid receptors, and the main ones are cannabinoid receptor 1 and cannabinoid receptor 2, abbreviated CB1 and CB2, respectively. The neurotransmitters are called endogenous cannabinoids, and the main ones are anandamide and one with a very long name that we'll just call 2-AG. If endogenous cannabinoids remind you of the compounds in cannabis, that's because they are in fact similar, except these are made in your body. The similarity between the cannabinoids in cannabis and the ones in our bodies is actually the basis of the plant's effects. For example, THC is structurally similar to anandamide, which allows it to bind to the same receptors as anandamide and thereby influence the body via the endocannabinoid system in a way that produces the effects one perceives as a high. CBD is structurally similar to 2-AG, which allows it to exert its effects, so on and so forth. Humanity and cannabis go way back, like 5,000 years back. Various claims have been made based on different evidence, with some pointing to the cultivation of cannabis for its fibers in ancient China as early as 4,000 BC. Its use as a medicine by the ancient Chinese is recorded in the Pensao Ching, the world's oldest pharmacopoeia. The title translated means the herbal, and the oldest known copies of the book are about 2,000 years old, and it is believed to have been written around 250 AD. However, it is based on oral traditions passed down since as long ago as 2700 BC. Cannabis use spread to various cultures across the globe over time. A few banned it and some embraced it. However, despite this long history, it wasn't until the 1900s that countries around the world began to ban cannabis en masse. To understand cannabis prohibition in the United States, it is necessary to understand the history of American drug prohibition as a whole. When examined side-by-side, side, certain dark patterns begin to emerge between the methods and narratives used to justify and enforce the prohibition of different drugs. Because the basis and history of today's drug laws can at times be shocking from a modern perspective, both scientific and moral, it's important to demonstrate that the tale of cannabis prohibition is the rule and not the exception. For this reason also, 
A script of this podcast containing in-text citations and a complete bibliography is provided in the description. Although I recommend listeners to undertake their own research into this part of American history, these sources may be a good place to start. This is an aspect of the conversation taking place today surrounding cannabis legalization that is gravely overlooked, as it has the power to dramatically shift an already changing public perspective regarding the war on drugs. Prohibition as a whole is steeped in racism. The first anti-drug law in the U.S. was a local San Francisco law that banned running or visiting opium dens in 1875, a cultural phenomenon that accompanied the influx of Chinese immigrants that were drawn to the California gold rush. The reason cited for the ban was that, quote, many women and young girls, as well as young men of respectable family, were being induced to visit the Chinese opium smoking dens, where they were ruined morally and otherwise, end quote. This legislation directly targeted Chinese immigrant populations, since opium dens were almost exclusively specific to their communities, and this is highlighted by the fact that Americans could at the time have drugs shipped to their front door. The Sears, Roebuck, and Company catalog sold kits complete with syringes and heroin or cocaine for $1.50. Alternatively, they could go to any pharmacy and buy opium or heroin in any number of forms made commercially available by Bayer Pharmaceuticals. So it was less about the drug use and more about the drug use with, quote, Chinamen. In 1909, Congress made smoking opium a federal offense via the Smoking Opium Exclusion Act. Incredibly, but perhaps not surprisingly, the act made exceptions for formulations of opium that were recreationally popular among wealthy whites, such as injectable and drinkable opium tinctures as well as opium-based medications, instead targeting only smokable forms of opium which were preferred in Chinese communities. Whereas opium was used to target and criminalize the Chinese, cocaine was used to target black communities, using the narrative that cocaine use by African Americans was linked to insanity and violence threatening white women and children. This narrative was peddled by the media, with headlines like this one from the New York Times in 1914. Quote, Negro cocaine fiends are a new southern menace, murder and insanity increasing among lower-class blacks because they have taken to sniffing. End quote. As reflected in journalistic archives, such articles were being published nationwide with increasing frequency and fervor between 1898 and 1914, providing a grim and hysterical context surrounding the congressional hearings regarding the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act, which were taking place at this time. The Harrison Narcotics Tax Act was proposed by Francis Burton Harris, a Democratic representative from New York, and approved on December 17, 1914. A quote from the act itself describes it as an act to provide for the registration of, with collectors of internal revenue, and to impose a special tax on all persons who produce, import, manufacture, compound, deal in, dispense, sell, distribute, or give away opium or coca leaves, their salts, derivatives, or preparations, and for any other purposes. Legally, a consequence of the act was that doctors could still prescribe it, only not for addiction. So what about cannabis? In the 1900s, the influx of Mexican refugees fleeing the political unrest that foreshadowed the Mexican Revolution began to rise, bringing with them recreational and medicinal cannabis culture. Until this point, cannabis had remained legal, hemp was widely used in the textile industry, and its benefits had even been cited in medical literature. All of this would soon change. You see, in the 1930s, alcohol prohibition in America was winding down. 
and as the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry Anslinger was experiencing some anxiety regarding job security around this time. Because up until then, the Bureau had focused on cocaine and heroin, drugs used by relatively few people. Now, Anslinger was a racist fellow even by the standards of his day. In fact, he nearly lost his job over his use of the N-word at one point, but friends in high places saw him through that scandal and several others. He quickly figured out that he could apply the now well-established formula of taking some minority group and a narcotic associated with their culture and linking them to extreme violence and insanity to conjure up an amoral foreign specter threatening white women, children, and values across the country inciting the requisite hysteria to get some legislation passed and ensuring a promising future for his bureau. The sensationalist media campaign ramped up further, despite already featuring headlines such as, quote, Kill six in hospital. Mexican, crazed by marijuana, runs amuck with a butcher knife, end quote, which was from the New York Times in 1925. The use of the word marijuana in the media, based on the Spanish word marijuana with an H, helped to link the drug to the Hispanic population. Cannabis was also linked to African Americans. Anslinger pushed the narrative that jazz was evil music and that marijuana use made African Americans forget their place in society. But don't take it from me. In the words of Anslinger himself, quote, Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the United States, and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz and swing, result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others, end quote. Given what is known today, that statistic could only be born of delusion or dishonesty, and as it turns out, it was the latter. In an incident covered in the book This Is Your Country on Drugs by Ryan Grimm, historian David Courtright obtained the surveys published by the Bureau of Narcotics through a Freedom of Information request and found the data to have been fabricated. Predictably, this data depicted a severe exaggeration of the situation as an urgent crisis and painted Anslinger's policies as an effective solution. Besides using fabricated data to justify his policies in the U.S., as the U.S. representative to the United Nations Narcotics Commission, he also used them to urge allied countries to adopt his agenda and pushed the U.N. to pursue prohibition on an international scale. A 2018 issue of the Penn Stater magazine that covers Anslinger's history details how through his position as a representative to the UN, Anslinger created FBN offices across the globe, including in Beirut, Istanbul, and Bangkok, and sent agents around the world to participate in drug investigations. His tactics abroad were as aggressive as they were at home, and included actions such as threatening to cut off aid to Thailand when they refused to ban opium smoking and cooperate with FBN operations. His schemes paid off, however, and eventually, nearly every country would abide by his policies. His efforts in the states likewise yielded the effects he desired. In the year 1922, cannabis was banned in six states and ruled a misdemeanor in one. By 1933, 29 states had criminalized cannabis, and Texas was allowing life sentences just for possession. In 1936, the film Reefer Madness was released, which some of you listening may be familiar with. But for those who aren't, the film basically depicts a group of characters whom, as a result of smoking and selling cannabis, kill a pedestrian with a car, have extramarital sex, try to rape each other, go insane, murder each other, frame each other for that murder, hide from the police, murder each other some more, get arrested, commit suicide, and get committed to an asylum for life. The following year, in 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act was enacted, 
It had been drafted by Anslinger and introduced by Democratic Representative Robert Dotton of North Carolina. The racism Anslinger imbued into his policies is evidenced in the arrest statistics for the years following the Marijuana Tax Act. African Americans became three times more likely to be arrested for the same charge as whites, and Mexicans nine times more likely. The 1952 Boggs Act established mandatory minimum sentencing, first offense for possession, two to five years in prison, and a $2,000 fine. This trend continued to be taken further by administration after administration, until just recently when the narrative began to shift. The impacts of this legacy on America today cannot be understated. African Americans and whites show similar rates of illicit drug use. However, African Americans are 6.5 times more likely to be incarcerated for drug-related offenses. Data cited in a 2003 publication by the ACLU shows that despite representing only 13% of illicit drug users, 74% of people incarcerated for drug possession are African American. Of the people who received mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses in 2011, 38% were Latino and 31% were African American, despite only representing 16% and 13% of the U.S. population respectively. A 2011 report by the U.S. Sentencing Commission found that drug sentences for African Americans were 13.1% longer than for white Americans between 2007 and 2009. An interesting note about the Marijuana Tax Act is that it was overturned in 1969 as a result of Leary v. United States. Timothy Leary, a prominent psychedelic figure in the 60s, was arrested for possession of cannabis in violation of the Marijuana Tax Act. He challenged the act, and the United States Supreme Court delivered a unanimous opinion that the act was unconstitutional, because anyone seeking a tax stamp would have to incriminate themselves in the process. Congress responded with the passage of the Controlled Substances Act the following year, and in 1973, the Drug Enforcement Administration was created. The drug war manufactured by Harry Anslinger to advance his personal career and oppress those he hated wages on today. Based on numbers alone, it is one of the most spectacular failures in United States history. If the moral and social consequences are considered, it is something far, far worse. The war on drugs and the legal and political systems behind it are rooted in a deeply oppressive history. The scheduling of substances and their enforcement today are based on largely political decisions, severely disconnected from the science and commitment to the people of this country that should by all means be driving them. According to the DEA website, a drug is placed in one of five schedules based on its, quote, acceptable medical use and the drug's abuse or dependency potential, end quote. We won't cover them all, but basically, Schedule II drugs are considered to have currently accepted medical uses, but also have a high potential for abuse and dependency, such as fentanyl, Vicodin, and other commonly prescribed opioids. Drugs are placed in Schedule I on the basis that they have no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. Drugs in this category are considered the most dangerous. This is the category where cannabis currently resides, alongside heroin, LSD, MDMA, and many others. Of the many problems with this system, one of the most significant is that the DEA and the FDA are the ones with the power to classify substances under the Controlled Substances Act. Congress also has the power to pass laws scheduling, rescheduling, or descheduling substances. However, in doing so, they are not required to take into account abuse potential, scientific and medical data, and several other important considerations regarding the substance in question. A critical analysis of the CSA merits its own podcast altogether, 
but I do encourage you to look into it and ask yourself why cannabis is Schedule 1 while fentanyl is Schedule 2, why the medical and scientific communities and their findings don't play a far more significant role in the process. And lastly, consider the system in relation to the history of prohibition that we've discussed and the DEA's role in it. At first glance, it's easy to see this issue as secondary to some of the others that are facing our country right now. But upon breaking the surface, it becomes clear that this issue is deeply connected to many others, like the prison industrial complex, our incredibly disproportionate prisoner population, police violence, criminal justice reform, healthcare reform, etc. So with this in mind, what is the science regarding cannabis and its uses? And why shouldn't it be Schedule 1? Every second that cannabis spends classified as Schedule 1 represents the perpetuation of a lie, one that has real-world consequences for Americans. This lie, that cannabis has no medical uses, is particularly pernicious not just because of the sheer extent of its disingenuity, but because it continues to be used to justify the incarceration and oppression of disproportionately minority citizens for nonviolent crimes and keeps affordable, available, and often life-saving treatments out of the hands of those who desperately need them. So, what are the medical uses for cannabis, and what is the science supporting them? Medical cannabis seems like one of those things that most people have heard about, or at least heard debated. Can you give us a rundown of what the main medical uses for it are? Yeah, so most of the medical benefits of cannabis are attributable to CBD, but not necessarily all of them. Other cannabinoids certainly play a role. It's mostly used in pain management, and it doesn't necessarily replace the use of opioids for extreme pain, but it's a great alternative to NSAIDs, which are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as ibuprofen or Aleve. And the reason why it's such a great alternative is whenever you use ibuprofen or Aleve in larger quantities, they can cause issues with your kidneys, they can cause stomach ulcers, they can cause what is called GERD. It also really helps with symptoms of multiple sclerosis, and it's great for general nerve pain. It's also been used successfully to treat fibromyalgia, internal cystitis, and other conditions associated with chronic pain. That's right. Also, in addition to pain management, CBD is also effective as an antiemetic, which simply means it's useful for treating nausea and vomiting. And this is extremely important for people who are undergoing chemotherapy, for example. It also has anticonvulsant properties, making it effective in the treatment of epilepsy and other seizure disorders. Also, antispasmodic properties, which refer to muscle spasms, which are kind of different from convulsions. Convulsions are typically accompanied by altered states of consciousness and are associated with seizures. Muscle spasms, on the other hand, can result from overexertion, dehydration, and are symptoms of MS and ALS. So antispasmodic properties make CBD useful in treating Parkinson's, MS, cerebral palsy, and other conditions of which muscle spasms are typically a symptom. So what does the research tell us about how these properties of cannabis work, like the mechanisms behind them? So the research is still ongoing, and there's a lot about cannabis that remains unknown, but a lot has been learned in recent years. State-level legalization does less to help with research than most people might think. The federal legalization is what's really necessary to make any significant progress in removing the major barriers to research right now. That said, last year, the Agricultural Improvement Act changed the definition of cannabis to not include hemp, which has really helped with CBD research. But before going into the research, though, I want to mention a method that's commonly used because it comes up in a lot of the research we're going to talk about. Say you have a substance that has specific observable effect in mammals that you're interested in, and you have a pretty good idea of how that mechanism behind the effect works, like what receptor it acts on. 
A common way to test this is to disable that receptor in the test animal, usually rats or mice. And if the effect of the substance of interest is disrupted or eliminated, then that indicates that the receptor was actually involved or necessary for the mechanism. This principle is applied in many different ways. Take the component of a mechanism you're curious about, remove it, and see if the mechanism is disrupted or inhibited. We'll see several examples of this going forward, though. So what are those kinds of tests called? Um, they're called knockout experiments. Oh? <laughs> like one-hit KO! That's gotta hurt! Speaking of pain, didn't you mention that cannabis is mostly used to treat neuropathic pain earlier? How does the science of that work? So people use CBD to treat all kinds of pain, and there's still a lot to learn about how it interacts with the endocannabinoid system to affect different forms of pain. One common application on which interesting research is being done is the use of CBD to treat neuropathic pain and pain related to inflammation, which is a common component of several conditions that are associated with chronic pain. Neuropathic pain is pain that originates from the nervous system as opposed to resulting from activation of pain receptors in response to a stimulus, which is called nociception or nociceptive pain, and the pain receptors are called nociceptors. Neuropathic pain can result from damage to the nervous system, or it can occur in absence of injury or external factors, and inflammation often plays a role in this. One important aspect of pain is hyperalgesia, which is when a person develops a lowered nociceptive threshold or pain threshold, making otherwise less painful stimuli more painful. This can be caused by or related to inflammation and is one aspect of neuropathic pain. Cannabinoid receptor agonists, remember that agonists activate receptors while antagonists inhibit them, agonists modulate inflammation, as well as how easily pain receptors can fire an action potential, creating the sensation of pain, which is also referred to as nociceptive threshold. This is possible because cannabinoid 2 receptors, or CB2 receptors, are expressed in cells involved in inflammation and immune system response. So activation of CB2 receptors in the peripheral nervous system triggers a pain-killing response in people experiencing hyperalgesia or neuropathic pain. Part of the evidence for this is that in mice with chronic inflammatory pain that have had their CB2 receptors genetically eliminated, CB2 receptor agonists did not trigger an anti-hyperalgesic response. This confirms that the substance used to activate peripheral CB2 receptors was actually achieving its mechanism by acting on peripheral CB2 receptors and not by some other mechanism. That's so cool! So, let me make sure I got this straight. CB2 receptors basically influence the cells that tell your body how much pain you're in, and CBD specifically triggers those receptors to dull pain when CB2 is acting up? Yeah, you got it. Sweet! Does CBD do anything else with CB2? Yeah, there's also evidence of a mechanism by which CB2 receptors mediate indirect stimulation of opioid receptors. CB2 receptors are expressed in human skin cells, and they're called keratinocytes, and research shows that stimulation of these CB2 receptors specifically by an agonist can evoke a painkilling response, or analgesia, by triggering the release of beta-endorphins. These endorphins then inhibit pain by acting on mu-opioid receptors expressed in neurons that send signals to the brain. This was tested by injecting a CB2 agonist into a rat previously injected with naloxone, a mu-opioid receptor antagonist. The fact that the pain-killing effect of the CB2 agonist was not observed in rats treated with a mu-opioid antagonist indicates that beta-endorphin is necessary for CB2-mediated antinociception. Additionally, the CB2 agonist did not induce analgesia in the mu-opioid receptor knockout rats. CBD can actually also act on TRPV1 receptors, also known as uh, capsaicin receptors, not just CB2 receptors. 
In a neuropathic pain context, CBD can also induce analgesia by activating these receptors. Holy cow! CBD can do all of that by only acting on mostly that one receptor? Does it do even more stuff elsewhere in the body? Yeah, it also has anti-emetic properties. So CB1 receptor agonism by THC is shown to suppress vomiting. This is evidenced by the fact that the anti-emetic effect of CB1 receptor agonist is reversed by first antagonizing CB1 receptors before administering the agonist. Inverse agonism, which unlike antagonism, promotes the opposite of the receptor's normal effect, in this case promotes vomiting. CB1 receptor agonists like THC have been shown to suppress conditioned gaping reaction in rats, which is basically used as a measure of nausea. Rats can't vomit and the gaping reaction is used instead, and it's basically the same muscle contractions that are used to vomit, but they can't produce enough force to open the barrier between the stomach and the esophagus. CBD may also mediate anti-emetic effects by indirectly activating serotonin-1A autoreceptors at the dorsal raphe nucleus, in turn reducing serotonin release in terminal forebrain regions. Research shows that this reduction interferes with nausea. Lesioning of the dorsal raphe nucleus in rats also interfered with a conditioned gaping response. Yeah, and CBD also has anticonvulsant properties. The exact mechanism of action behind the anticonvulsant effects of CBD is largely unknown, though. It's not via CB1 receptors or voltage-gated sodium ion channels. One possibility is that the effect is achieved cumulatively through various mechanisms, such as modulating the calcium movement in cells, inhibition of GABA channels, and through anti-inflammatory mechanisms. During phase 3 clinical testing of Epidiolex, which is essentially pure CBD, up to 43% of some patients using Epidiolex observed a 50% decrease in the number of seizures they experienced over a 28-day period. Lastly, there's also the antispasmodic properties of CBD that we mentioned earlier, but these aren't very well understood. Central nervous system CB1 receptors seem to mediate both pain and muscle spasticity, so it follows that THC has some antispasmodic properties. Research using CB1-deficient mice indicates that, at least in multiple sclerosis models, spasticity is mediated by CB1 and not CB2. CBD antispasmodic properties might be explained by a mechanism indirectly affecting anandamide levels. Alright, so now that we've talked about some possible benefits, there's always been some concern in the U.S. about the relationship between cannabis use and mental health, as well as its addictive potential, particularly in terms of adolescent development. What does the research on this look like? At this point, the overall impacts of cannabis use on development aren't very well understood, and part of what that entails is that there's still controversy in the literature Studies may arrive at conflicting results, and it can be difficult to pinpoint the reason for this. But this is a natural aspect of research into any new and complex field, and there's certainly a lot being discovered. There is evidence that cannabis use can trigger psychotic episodes, or it can worsen the condition. But this is only limited to people already experiencing psychosis or are at a high risk for it. But it can't induce psychosis in an otherwise healthy human being, which is an important distinction because studies show that the prevalence of psychotic disorders in the U.S. is somewhere between 0.25 and 0.64 of 1%. A bigger consideration in the context of legalization is its effects on the development of kids. There's a lot of young people using cannabis nowadays, and there's evidence that it can, in fact, impact brain development, including brain structure, connectivity, blood flow, and also measures of cognition and intelligence, like intelligence quotient. A lot of research on this is covered in a review titled Considering Cannabis, the Effects of Regular Cannabis Use on Neurocognition in Adolescents and Young Adults, which looks at the effects of regular use on neurodevelopment based on existing literature. 
Some of the results in this review discussion showed that increased use in adolescents significantly predicted poor attention and verbal memory. A fairly large longitudinal study that followed 1,037 subjects from birth to age 38 was also covered. This study found that individuals who never regularly used cannabis saw a small 0.8 point increase in their IQ between childhood and adulthood, while individuals who were dependent on cannabis at three or more points during the study on average lost 5.8 IQ points. Further analysis after controlling for other factors like gender, other substance use, and mental health disorders found that persistent cannabis dependence was also associated with deficits in things like executive function, attention, verbal learning, and memory. And this data was fairly consistent with results from cross-sectional studies as well. Out of the 31 cross-sectional studies that controlled for psychiatric conditions, all but one consistently reported these cannabis-related cognitive deficits, and the exception had a relatively small sample size of 19 per experimental group. That said, another interesting aspect is that one study still detected cognitive defects after one month of abstinence, while another study found significant recovery after four months. So, at least based on this research, the persistence of these effects is unclear, and whether the negative effects are somewhat permanent or not makes a big impact on the implications of this research. No joke. I can't imagine having to live with a mental illness, not knowing about any of these possible effects, and then making that illness permanently worse. And you said it can also affect the development of the brain in kids or young adults exposed to cannabis? So uh, several studies looking at adolescent and young adult cannabis users have identified abnormalities in their brain structure. I don't think listing the effects on different brain structures would be very useful here because it doesn't really mean anything without a detailed explanation of what all of those structures do. So for the sake of the scope of this discussion, basically, um, after controlling for other factors, cannabis use in adolescent samples has been associated with effects on the volume of several brain structures. And these changes in gray matter architecture were associated with mood symptoms, executive dysfunction, poor verbal memory, and other things that suggest that these brain abnormalities are not a good thing. Other studies using brain imaging techniques that are also mentioned in the review article indicate that chronic cannabis use by adolescents and young adults can also affect vascular function in the brain. But more research is necessary to establish if and how this relates to the uh, structural abnormalities. That's awful! Surely kids wouldn't smoke this if they knew how badly it was affecting them, especially since it's not supposed to be addictive, right? Well, actually, it can be addictive. Cannabis addiction is often referred to as marijuana use disorder in literature. Its definition in the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual involves consuming more over longer periods of time than intended, persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to control or reduce use, continued use despite social or interpersonal problems associated with it, failure to fulfill responsibilities due to use, increased tolerance, and symptoms of cannabis withdrawal syndrome upon cessation. Cannabis withdrawal symptoms include irritability, aggression, anxiety, insomnia, loss of appetite, and depression. Some physiological withdrawal symptoms include tremors, sweating, chills, fevers, and headaches. Most users will never become addicted to cannabis, but it does happen. A study published in JAMA Psychiatry shows that between 2012 and 2013, 30% of users may have had some degree of marijuana use disorder. Also, the younger you are when you start smoking, the greater risk of addiction you have. Research cited on the National Institute of Health website found that people who begin using cannabis before the age of 18 are four to seven times more likely to develop some degree of cannabis use disorder as an adult. This points back to the idea that the vast majority of the risks associated with cannabis come from starting its use at such a young age. 
Growing up, I've heard so many people refer to marijuana as a gateway drug. Do you think that a lot of these kids are doing weed because they think it's safer, like that title implies? It's very possible, which is why we need to get the truth out there. It's also very important to mention that, as far as cannabis being a gateway drug, that idea is not supported by science. A 1999 report commissioned by Congress to assess the dangers of medical cannabis found the following. Quote, there is no conclusive evidence that the drug effects of marijuana are causally linked to the subsequent abuse of other illicit drugs. End quote. Several studies following this one also failed to substantiate the idea. That's somewhat relieving. I, I do have to ask, though, why are we talking about this if we're trying to demonstrate that it shouldn't be Schedule 1? Weren't you trying to show that cannabis had a lot of beneficial effects at the beginning of this conversation? So we wanted to talk about this research to demonstrate that there is some evidence out there that seems to substantiate concerns about underage cannabis use. But because findings across studies are not always consistent, more research into this is needed to reach more concrete conclusions. The point being that cannabis is sometimes characterized almost as if it's harmless, which while not as damaging as the opposite extreme, the idea that it's this highly addictive gateway drug that has no medical use and drives people insane, it's still disingenuous. Research shows that, like with anything else, there are explicit risks involved with cannabis use under certain circumstances and if used irresponsibly. Ignoring or misinforming people about the risks can yield consequences for people who are looking to use cannabis responsibly. While it's absurd to claim that there's no medical use and schedule it alongside heroin, the idea that, quote, weed is safer than peanuts is equally absurd. Allergies aside, as far as I know, eating peanuts during development can't change the shape of your brain or significantly affect cognitive functioning. Hmm, that's fair. So, like you said, it must be used safely, under the right circumstances. In that situation, affecting cognitive function is exactly what we're going for. For example, cannabis shows potential in treating psychiatric disorders, correct? First off, a lot of the research we're going to mention is covered in a review article called New Perspectives on the Use of Cannabis in the Treatment of Psychiatric Disorders. So depression affects roughly 7% of the U.S. population, according to the National Institute of Health. And in a recent review, seven cross-sectional studies found clear evidence of a reduction of depressed mood through the use of medical cannabis. Another cross-sectional study found lower levels of depressive symptoms in occasional or even daily cannabis users versus people who have never tried it. There's also many clinical case reports that describe a significant relief of depressive symptoms in patients who used it specifically for that purpose. An important point about THC is that it has a dose-dependent effect on anxiety, meaning that it is anxiolytic at low doses but can induce anxiety at high doses. One study found that patients with unremitted PTSD who were treated with orally absorbed THC saw beneficial effects on an overall symptom severity, sleep quality, nightmare frequency, and hyperarousal. CBD doesn't generally induce anxiety at high doses, but the optimal dose for treating anxiety isn't clear at this point. One study used simulated public speaking to test stress and found that CBD significantly reduced post-stress anxiety. A similar study showed that CBD could also reduce the increased anxiety in subjects with social anxiety disorder who experienced simulated public speaking. CBD has also been shown to be anxiolytic in animal models and studies, and significant anxiolytic effects have been observed following CBD microinjections into various parts of the amygdala in test rats. What does available research say about how these properties work? CB1 receptors, which again are primarily expressed in the central nervous system, play a complex role in depression. The uh, CB1 receptor antagonist Ramonaban was actually taken off the market worldwide due to its severe depressive side effects. 
so it follows that CB1 receptor agonism may actually alleviate depression. A study that looked at the antidepressant-like effects of cannabinoids including THC and CBD in mice found significant effects but only at specific doses. The phrase antidepressant-like is used in this context because the methods that are used to measure depression in mouse models can be fairly indirect. For example, the force swim test, or FST, is centered around a rodent's response to the threat of drowning. The test animal is placed in a cylinder filled with water, and at first it will fight to escape, but eventually it will exhibit immobility, or floating behavior, which is used as a behavioral measure of despair or hopelessness. The amount of time the test animal spends immobile can be affected by the administration of antidepressant drugs, so it's used to test antidepressant effects of new drugs. Despite acting on both CB1 receptors and CB2 receptors, THC acts primarily on CB1 receptors, which is evidenced by the fact that most of the behavioral and anxiolytic effects of THC can be negated via selective CB1 receptor antagonism, like with Ramonabant. Also, the fact that THC has a bidirectional effect on anxiety indicates that cannabis may influence the modulatory role of CB1 receptors in GABA and glutamate release in the amygdala and related areas. For context, GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter and glutamate is excitatory. Administration of selective synthetic CB1 receptor agonists have also been shown to produce anxiolytic-like effects in rat models of anxiety. One study investigated the role of CB2 receptors in anxiety by taking mice that were genetically manipulated to overexpress CB2 receptors and exposing them to stressful stimuli with and without administering alprazolam, which is a known anxiolytic. They also took regular mice and exposed them to stressful stimuli with and without the alprazolam for comparison. In normal mice, the alprazolam significantly reduced measures of stress but measures of stress were significantly reduced in the mice that overexpressed CB2 receptors regardless of whether they were given alprazolam. This indicates that CB2 plays a key role in stress and related behaviors, but when combined with existing literature, it also indicates that CB2 plays an important role in the regulation of emotional behaviors overall. Well, that should just about wrap this up. Are there any last thoughts you want to share? Yeah, there is actually. So I'd like to leave you with this quote from a 1994 interview with one of Nixon's top advisors and a major figure in the Watergate scandal named John Ehrlichman. Quote, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. Well, Ricardo, Blake, thank you for your time. And thank you, listeners, as well. This has been today's podcast on cannabis, signing off.